Listeners, start your engines. Franchise Detours, Episode 5. Rob here. Find more episodes of this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcatchers, as well as crookedtable.com. On this episode, we're going to continue our Child's Play Chucky retrospective, looking back at the killer doll and all his exploits. And we are joined by Brandon Stanwick of Fearsome Queer to talk about 1991's Child's Play 3. This one actually has a reputation for being kind of the black sheep of the Child's Play franchise, or the Chucky franchise, as as it were. But is Child's Play 3 worth remembering or sweeping under the rug? Let's get into it and find out. Welcome to Franchise Detours, where we believe no movie series travels in a straight line. This episode, we're going to be talking about the third in our Chucky or Child's Play franchise, whatever you want to call this thing, 1991's Child's Play 3. And I am honored to welcome to the show, Brandon Stanwyck. How are you doing? I'm great. I'm so glad to be here talking about my uh, favorite horror franchise. So before we get to that, I want to hear about that, of course. But before we get there, tell people a little bit about who you are, what you're up to, and and all that. So I'm Brandon, and I'm a film reviewer critic, podcaster out there in the world. I'm on the Academy Queens podcast where we talk about actresses of Academy Awards past. And I also review horror films for my website, fearsomequeer.net. So that's pretty much what I'm up to most of the time. You mentioned that this is your favorite horror franchise. So I want to hear more about why that is. And then we'll, we'll transition into Child's Play 3. So it became my favorite in my adult life after I came out as gay and revisited the franchise. I realized at that point just how queer the franchise is. Sometimes it's very obvious with its queerness, like Mm -hmm. in Seed of Chucky, but other times it's more subtle or covert, like these earlier entries, which I think have certainly a queerness to them. There are queer readings that can be applied to them, but they're not quite as obvious as the later installments. And as I'm sure you've mentioned here on this show, uh, Don Mancini wrote or co-wrote all of these, and he is an out gay man. So I think this franchise has a, a through line that most don't, like your Friday the 13th and your Halloween's and your nightmares on Elm Street can be all over the place because you have different people contributing their ideas to uh, these characters. But here with Don Mancini, there seems to be an organic evolution to this franchise, thanks to his involvement in every entry. I think it's very unique in that way, too. Not only with Brad Dourif being there from the beginning since 1988 through to the show that they're going to do this fall, but then, yeah, with Don Mancini being involved first as a writer for the first four and then as a director for the back three. And I think a big part of why those queer themes become more overt is because he had full creative control at that point. And so he could pretty much 
be as as direct as he wanted with whatever he wanted to talk about in the latter films. And I think you you see a lot more of his sensibility coming in there with the with the self-awareness, with the the LGBTQ themes and all that. And I, and I think it's it's a really interesting trajectory to see him track this three iterations of this franchise from Chucky and Andy, Chucky and Tiffany, and then Chucky and everybody, I guess, the last two become Andy, Nika, Tiffany. It's like an amalgamation of everything that's come before. When did you first encounter Chucky? And what is your what are your thoughts on the wild roller coaster ride that it's taken? So I think I first became aware of Chucky in my childhood. I was over at, I think, my aunt and uncle's house and it was on the tv in like the living room while we kids were playing in an adjacent room and i found myself very fascinated i grew up on horror movies and this was one that i had uh, never seen i was unfamiliar with it and i found myself gravitating toward it while all my you know cousins continued to play in the other room and as i recall it was like the climax of the first child's play like it was in the apartment Mm -hmm. When um, like the mother throws Chucky into the fireplace and he comes out and it's the whole shoot him through the heart moment. And so I came in right at the tail end and I I had to know exactly what this movie was and see how it had gotten to this point. But I don't think I watched a Chucky movie in its entirety until Bride of Chucky. I think that was the first one I saw from beginning to end. And uh, I loved I liked them all. But it wasn't until later in life when I came out as an adult and was able to see them as a gay man that I realized just how special they are. Yeah, I I, I do think that the, it, it, I've noticed that this franchise does have a certain resonance with the LGBTQ community. Do you think it's it's because of, like, what do you attribute that to? Just, to, like, I guess, the how those themes are laced throughout the storytelling or is it or is it something deeper than that? Well, there's certainly subtle queer clues throughout this uh, franchise. There's several here in the film we're going to talk about today. I think the film we're about to talk about today, Child's Play 3, is a turning point in the franchise when it comes to the queer elements of it all. Mm -hmm. But Seed of Chucky, I think, is when people really finally got it. I know you'll talk about that here in a couple weeks, but that film deals with gender pretty overtly with the child of Chucky and Tiffany and his identity his, their identity and all that. But when you go back and watch them knowing that that's where the franchise is going to go, you can pick up on these little hints that I think Don Mancini and um, his uh, cohorts were trying to drop along the way. And I wonder how even more queer it could have been had studios probably not intervened. I don't know exactly the details of that, but I would imagine that there was some studio pushback at some point with all that. So I think there's definitely a lot more here than meets the eye, and especially more than some heterosexual critics might give it credit for. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. As you said, it gets more overt as it goes on. And it has 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 basically said as much that later on he get pushing the envelope more and more in that direction. But I think even in these first few, you're right, there are, and I didn't really notice it. I think I watched the this one for the first time like a year ago or so. And I tweeted that I was watching it and you responded to my tweet. And you said about how it's way, way more queer than than people realize. And then I was watching it without lens for this rewatch, especially. And I was like, yeah, I guess that is there. I'm a straight man. And I so I didn't see that reading as much, but it's it's 100% in the text of this film. You just have to bring that perspective to it a little bit more or look a little bit closer. 
and uh, and yeah, I I do think this one is obviously in as far as the franchise is concerned, one of the I guess more criticized slash black sheep of the, of the franchise. I think part of that is probably because it's not directed by anyone who was involved in the, in the creation of the, the franchise. The first two were both, I think, directed by writers of the film. And then obviously Mancini took over later on, but here you have director Jack Bender. And this one was released nine months after Child's Play 2. So the studio was really just pushing it out there. Do you think that there are any signs of that fatigue in this film, just on a basic storytelling level or the approach even that are evident throughout uh, Child's Play 3? I think something that throws some people off is the time jump because we have a a new actor playing Andy. And he's supposed to be, what, like five or six years older than when we last saw Andy in Child's Play 2. So I think that throws people off a little bit and it maybe feels a little bit random. But I think seeing adolescent Andy, especially in this hyper-masculine setting, is really important to what this franchise is trying to focus on beyond the bloodshed and the black humor. So I can see how maybe the studio trying to quickly shoot these out in a fast succession might have fatigued some viewers. But I think given the circumstances of how quickly the turnaround was, the folks behind this film released something really interesting and worth delving into. Yeah, I think so too. I think I was just wanting to address mostly the stigma that this movie has. And I think the the time jump is a big part of it. The recast is part of it. Brad Dourif and uh, and there's only like one other, Peter Haskell, who plays the CEO of Playpals. Play, yeah, Play they're, they're, those are the only returning actors. And, and as we said, it's, it's a huge leap forward that then Bride of Chucky, I, I guess, course corrects because Bride of Chucky picks up a few months after this, even though it came out like seven years later. So it, it's a weird like sidestep for the franchise. Yeah. And you're, you're, you're right when you say that this movie is um, pretty maligned when it comes to this franchise. This is usually ranked pretty low in people's rankings of the franchise, especially when you look at the uh, the first half of it all. And I think that's unfair. And, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll get into it. And I think that's because most critics, at least at the time, were heterosexual leaning <laughs> and didn't quite read into what was going on. And I think the movie has found a new audience later uh, in life. And I'm really happy for it. I actually had completely forgotten about responding to your tweet that you had mentioned earlier. <laughs> and it was when you said that, I was like, oh my God, I totally remember saying that now. Yeah. Because um, yeah. this is a movie where when people tweet about it, I always feel the need to defend it because I'm, I'm always afraid that they're going to fo- uh, jump on the bandwagon and follow the Child's Play 3 sucks. And I think that's unfair. So yeah, I, I, respond, I recall responding uh, to that tweet <laughs> now that you mention it. Yeah, no, and in looking at the the franchise as a whole, it does feel like this movie brings a step towards those queer themes that you mentioned. I think it actually brings the it brings Chucky as a one-liner machine or like the comedy angles of it way more to the forefront as well. A lot of the lines that he's known for I feel like are from this movie. He said uh, don't fuck with the Chuck is in here. I think he even says, uh, yeah, you just can't keep a good guy down, which they even used in the marketing for the Chucky's show that's coming out this fall. 
So there's there's lots of little tidbits in here that that I think stealthily were impactful for the direction that that came next. So so Child's Play 2 left Chucky in the in the toy factory melted and exploded and basically all over the place. So so one thing that this movie does right off the bat is that warehouse was condemned. It's a, obviously a crime scene. So I guess his his soul is in the blood, essentially. And that's how he's brought back to life here. It's it's always fun when you watch horror franchises like this, how they killed the character and how they randomly bring them back. And and this this series has a real ball with constantly reinventing. Well, how are we going to bring Chucky back this time? Yeah, and we see that here in the opening title sequence of the film, which I think is so heavy metal. This yeah. you have all this like melted molten plastic and like blood is just trickled throughout and you you see the formation of a good guy doll, which I'm pretty sure is actually a rewind. I think we have a we actually have a good guy doll being melted and we're being presented with it in reverse. I think that's what's actually happening here, how they constructed this opening title sequence. But it is so cool, especially considering how Chucky um, dies, quote unquote, mm-hmm. at the end of Child's Play 2. Because I guess PlayPal's company being cheap and cutting corners, instead of just making new uh, good guy dolls out of fresh plastic, they just melted down the remnants from the, the climax <laughs> of Child's Play 2, which had uh, the blood in it. And uh, lo and behold, here we have uh, Chucky reincarnated, all because capitalists are cheap. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Capitalists are the real are the real villains in a lot of these. It, That's it, it, true. That goes back to like, even like uh, sci-fi horror, where you have like Cyberdyne or like Wayland yutani in the Alien movies. It's a constant running theme. And, and they even say in this movie that they're moving past Andy Barkley. The PlayPal's board is is trying to, mm-hmm. to move past it. And I think you can sell that the that to me felt like the franchise acknowledging, hey, we're having Andy go after that kid again. Sorry about that. Bear with us for one more. It feels like they, they're obviously ready to move past Andy, but the franchise isn't quite done with him yet. Do you have any read on how this movie develops Chucky and Andy's dynamic. Well, Child's Play 3 in a lot of ways is a stepping stone for the franchise. And one of them is Andy's break from the franchise. He circles back later in Mm -hmm. uh, one of the more recent sequels a little bit, but he's not a primary character moving forward. Uh, This is the Andy's swan song as a protagonist. Of course, he's played by a different actor here than we saw in the first two. But I wonder how conscious that was on Don Mancini and everyone else's part to make the decision that if this series is going to go forward, we need to part ways with Andy. Cause it's just, it's unrealistic at a certain point to just keep pairing Andy and Chucky together forever. So I think this was, it was a smart move on their part to give them their, their final moments here in the end, and then take the franchise in another direction with Bride of Chucky. Yeah, it's also this initial trilogy is I mentioned on the the episode I did on the first film. This initial trilogy is so focused on the metaphor of Chucky as childhood trauma, so to speak. The first film ends on that that shot of of Andy looking back like and and us watching the movie we're like this kid is going to this is going to haunt him for the rest of his life. And we see that in two as he tries to move on past his mom being institutionalized and trying to find a foster family or find a family at all. He finds at least a friend slash surrogate big sister and Kyle. And then again here, when he's put in a completely different environment, 
it, it makes sense that now he's on the cusp of, of adulthood that the franchise would, be, would decide that, okay, Andy is ready to put childish things away, so to speak, and to move past Chucky, or at least try to. I really find that interesting. And the fact that Chucky comes back and, and you get that epic middle finger towards the capitalist play pals where he literally kills the CEO with his own products with uh, you know, scaring him with toys and, and the, uh, the Lakeshore Strangler gets a, gets a strangle in there early in the movie with the yo-yo. I love the irony of that scene. Just like the good old days. Nothing like a strangulation to get the circulation going. So this is actually one of my favorite kills in the franchise. And it might be my favorite one in this film, largely due to the anti-corporate, anti-capitalist nature of it. So Mr. Sullivan, I think is his name, we're first introduced to him at the very beginning of Child's Play 2. And then he never really comes back in Child's Play 2, even though he's positioned as this important figure. We just forget about him after like 10 minutes into the movie when that one guy gets electrocuted. And then here in Child's Play 3, he's the cold open kill, which I think is great. And like you said, he is killed with the very things that made him rich. And it's it's very symbolic in a way. Chucky basically said, eat the rich and decided to kill him with these flying planes and these yo-yos. And there's other good guy dolls in the room. And they have their little like good guy doll conversation with each other, which I think is a really interesting, I don't know if it's technically a foreshadow, but of this multiple Chucky situation that we have later in one of the uh, more recent sequels. I think I read somewhere a long time ago that Don Mancini had wanted to do the multiple Chucky thing earlier in the franchise and the studio said no because it would be too expensive and cumbersome. So I wonder if this was his little wink to that idea. But yeah, I, I love seeing the CEO of Play Pals bite the dust with a yo-yo. Yeah, yeah, marbles too. That was, and that was something I saw too. This was definitely a, a movie where he planned to do the multiple Chuckies and, uh, and then obviously didn't get a chance to do so until much later. But you can see how that would play out just in a very similar situation to what happens in Cult of Chucky, where you have this isolated environment and you have multiple Chuckies floating around. I think that that's an interesting uh, that's an interesting idea to toy with, and I love that he circled back around because it's he that conceit is, ends up unifying all these characters that we've met along the way and finding a new direction for the show to go. So I love that bit as well. I think that would have been really really entertaining to see. Andy is now 16 and he's going into Kent Military Academy. So you were talking about this hyper-masculine environment. Maybe you want to start us off with exactly how that, that changes things. Like this is obviously Andy is dealing with trauma from being hunted by a killer doll twice before. He's got this, I don't know, checkered is not the right word, but he's got, he's been bounced around to like 16 different foster homes. And so he's a bit, obviously a bit of an outsider entering this, as you said, hyper-masculine environment, which is really embodied by Shelton, who's clearly the top asshole at, at uh, Kent Military Academy. And, and watching it this time with your perspective in mind, 
It's a hundred percent like such a homophobic undertone between the two of them. Speak to that a little bit and, and how that shapes Andy's story here and, and potentially going forward. So I've never attended a military academy, right. but here we are presented with this atmosphere that basically seeks to suppress individuality mm -hmm. and just forces the attendees, the students, the soldiers, however you want to uh, label them, basically forces them to homogenize and become the same, which is interesting because this is a co-ed institution. I'm not sure how common that is in military schools, but I always thought it was fascinating that in this movie we are presented with a military school that has both uh, boys and girls together and not separated. So. I use the term hypermasculine because there is a certain machismo that I think we associate with the military. And what we see here in this film are these other characters like Shelton wielding their power to suppress and humiliate those who they see as weaker or more feminine. And I think Andy is targeted in that way. So is Harold, his roommate slash friend here. We literally meet falling out of a closet, which is a, a key queer symbol right there. So I think the setting here is very key to the queerness of the film and the way the movie is playing with gender and identity here. So... I think that was a conscious choice on Mancini's part. Yeah, I have in my notes, I have several comments to the effect of how the movie's forcing masculine ideals on Andy, that Shelton is essentially toxic masculinity incarnate. It is an interesting take that, that the school is co-ed and that we get the trifecta of the bully, the nerd, and the girl, I guess. This is tapping into classic teen horror slash comedy archetypes. And I, and I, we have all three of them here filling out Andy's experience at, at Kent. And not only that, you have the scene where, where Andy is going into uh, Shelton's room to try and get Chucky back. And he obviously panics, which would make sense for that character. But there's a little bit of gay panic there. And 100%. Um, the thing is that Andy's not even trying to make a move whatsoever. It's, it's just he's simply in the room trying to recover something right. that's been taken. And Shelton reacts in the most homophobic way possible, which only fuels his resentment toward Andy. And he uses that power that he has as the leader of these boys to make Andy's life even more hellish than it already was. And Andy is targeted not only because he's because of that circumstance, but because he is the new kid, but because he has this trauma. And also Andy's more of a sensitive guy, obviously. We've seen in, in this movie. He's he's more kind-hearted, he's more pure than 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 everyone else in the school, apparently. And just in the earlier movies, even as a little boy, like he's got that innocence about him that he still carries in this movie. And and identity is obviously a huge theme for all of these films. And I think this one continues that as far as who are these, these kids, them trying to find their way, them being oppressed by the environment that they've been forced into mostly. And, uh, and Whitehurst even says like, if I could get out of here, I would, 
I would love to. I keep trying. I would love to get out of here if I had any other choice. And De Silva is even like keep continually trying to get kicked out and, and nothing's taking. And for them, it's them trying to find their place in the world. And for Chucky, it's his identity is literally trying to find a new body, whether that's Andy or in this case, because they keep this movie keeps the whole I have to go. I have I have to transfer my soul into the body of the first person to whom I've told my secret which is something that is dropped pretty much after this keeps that intact with him trying to target Tyler. Right. That whole concept of, right. The whole idea of trying to find the right body for you is also inherently queer. I'm not sure how intentional that was for Mancini in the beginning when this franchise first began, but certainly by seed of Chucky, it's, seemed very at the forefront of his mind. And considering this movie's halfway in between the beginning and Seed of Chucky, I wouldn't be surprised if those gears were turning in his mind while um, writing this film. And you mentioned Tyler, who I who I think is a beautiful character. I, I adore that little boy in this movie. And a lot of uh, the ideas that this movie presents are presented through him or through other people uh, commenting on him. Like he really wants this good guy doll. Like he is obsessed with the Play Pals characters. And when he sees that Andy's been sent one, he takes it for himself. And there's a moment later on where someone, I think it might've even been one of the girls, I can't remember, says that dolls are for girls, that he shouldn't be playing with a good guy because Tyler's a boy, which is another thing that a lot of young queer people struggle with early on in their lives before they come out, um, when they're closeted or even before the idea of orientation has even crossed their mind. So all Tyler knows is he wants to play with this good guy. There's something about it that draws him to it. And yet everyone around him is saying that doll's not for you. And it's one more example of this environment trying to strip people of who they are and what they want and trying to force a certain way upon them, which speaks to the world that we live in. Yeah. And I think Tyler's story also very closely mirrors Andy's initial introduction to the good guy to the point that we see the exact same commercial. He sees the same commercial on TV that Andy does in the first one and reacts to it almost identically. And I think for Andy, seeing another young boy who's been enthralled by the good guy, I think he's trying to protect him and and keep him safe from Chucky and or whatever trauma that that road is going to lead him down. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's definitely... The origins of the first iteration of Andy that we meet and Tyler here in Child's Play 3. There's definitely a parallel there. My only thing I think with Tyler is that he he seems to be a little bit older than Andy was in the original film. And so I, I feel it's it's a little harder for me as a viewer. Like I have to stretch my suspension of disbelief slightly more for him not to freak out when the doll starts talking to him. And, uh, and cursing at him and wanting to play hide the soul. So that that's like the only, but it's it's like they're trying to split the difference between him being young enough to, to I guess, in, for lack of a better term, fall for Chucky's ruse, but also old enough that he would realistically be at this military academy. You can't have like a six-year-old running around this school. That wouldn't make any sense. Right. There's not exactly a kindergarten at um, <laughs> exactly. military academy. Exactly. But yeah. 
I would also imagine that for, from a practicality standpoint, it's easier to work with a child actor who's slightly older. Like there's times when, when I'll watch the first child's play film and I wonder just how difficult it was to work with an actor so young as mm -hmm. the actor who played Andy in the first film. Tyler is a few years older than him. And I think it does show. He has a little bit more agency as an actor, I think. Andy in the first film is not to be mean, but he's a bit of a puppet in the way that he's used in the film as a character. Here, Tyler seems much more aware of himself. Maybe the actor is just a better actor. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think you're right. There are parallels there, but I think there, there are some differences given that the, the actor playing Tyler is a few years older than the actor who played Andy in the first. Yeah. Film. No, I think that makes sense. And you can see that looking back at the first two that the first film, it, Andy's the protagonist, but it's really his mom that drives the whole story. In the second film, Andy's the protagonist, but then it shifts to Kyle for like a 10, 15 minute action sequence that would be impossible to do with a small child. So right. I, I, yeah, this is like the first time Andy is actually really driving the, the, the mission to take down Chucky because he's finally able to. And I, I think, yeah, it's fun that they have that child role being represented by Tyler. And that, and that makes sense. And that's not something you could really do with a straight continuation. Um, because if they had continued using the actor that played Andy in the first two films, he's only, like you said, nine months older than mm -hmm. at the end of Child's Play 2. So he wouldn't have that. He wouldn't be leaps and bounds better as an actor. <laughs> they would need to jump a few years ahead in order to get that more mature side of Andy. They didn't really have a lot of options, I think, for this third movie. I think it was either switch it up and cast a new actor as Andy or do another one where the where the, the child is running around saying Chucky did it and the adults don't believe him. Of those two options, they, they did what was in the best interest, the longevity of the franchise. Uh, so I, I think that that makes a lot right. of sense. Even though it, it How is... How many movies could you have? <laughs> right, exactly. You have to of kind the of... the boy who cried Chucky. Yeah, that's a good, yeah, that should be the subtitle for this trilogy. But yeah, I think even though you do have that slight disconnect because it's not Alex Vincent as Andy, it's just like, well, it's, it's a trade-off. I think, it, I think if you had, if they had done as much as fans like to hate on this movie, which I agree with you has merit and, and is a good movie. If they had done a third one that was exactly like the first two, it might've just pushed this into the ground altogether. If it had been the exact same thing with no new ideas, with no new angles. And just like, he's at another foster family. I don't know. He's on the run with Kyle and Chucky comes after them again. I, I think they had to do, they had to do something bold. Honestly, I think it's the, the one of the first big bold choices this franchise makes because the second one is a good sequel to the first one, but it's also in a lot of ways, a traditional sequel to the first one. It's the first same character, a little bit later in a slightly different environment, but pretty close so that so that he can you know survive another killing spree. And then the third one starts to introduce a lot more elements, whether it's time jumps, new characters, new drastically new environments to keep things fresh each movie. And I think that's something that Mancini continues to do from this point on. Yeah. Let's talk about the kills for a second. So you mentioned the uh, Sullivan's kill, which I agree with you is a great sequence. Then we have the the garbage truck guy, the thing in the garbage with the garbage truck guy, which I think is really is really funny and entertaining. Do you any thoughts on on that scene or or any of the other major kills? I, I think that the one with the military barber, Sergeant 
Botnik stands out as just a, I don't know, a strange addition. He feels like he's in a different movie somewhat. What are your thoughts on that character? And I guess the the kill that comes. Okay, so, so first you mentioned the garbage truck guy. Mm-hmm. Now, for some reason, this is the kill that has remained with me the most all these mm-hmm. years. I'm not sure what it is about it. I don't know if it's the claustrophobic nature of this kill. Because you have a garbage truck guy who crawls into the back of his garbage truck thing because Chucky has convinced him that there's a kid trapped there. So the guy goes back there. He's like, he's like digging through the garbage and Chucky jumps into the cab of the truck and starts pushing buttons. And the, the mechanism that crushes the garbage starts closing in on him. And there is this like cylinder of spikes that is just rotating uh, and pulverizing all this garbage. I don't know if this is actually how garbage trucks work. But this idea like traumatized me as a child and I thought this could really happen to someone. And for some reason, this this is the kill that remained with me after all these yeah. years. And um, this poor guy, this guy is just this is working class dude just doing his job, trying to make money to feed his family. And Chucky just crushed him and pulverized him with his own truck. Yep. How rude. But it's so good. I love it. And his, his hand comes off as the, the door oh. is closing, too. Yeah, his you forearm hear, like, gets snapped. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, so that's a great one. But also Colonel Cochran, who also has a great kill in this movie, and only because it is so unexpected in the way that it plays out. Because you got this older guy has a heart condition. Chucky, all he has to do is just jump out with a knife, and he says some line, <laughs> and the guy just has this dramatic heart attack and crashes onto this, like, this like diorama of some war scenario. And Chucky's just like, you gotta be fucking kidding me. <laughs> and like, I think that's literally the line. And that is yeah, so yeah, funny. Is. That's really the, the franchise leaning into its dark humor. Cause you think this guy's really going to get decapitated or something gruesome. And he's just some old fart who has a heart attack and it's hilarious. That's a great moment. And, and, and then you mentioned the barber, Sergeant Botnick. Now, what makes this so interesting is we have Andrew Robinson playing yep. this part, who genre uh, lovers will know from one of two characters. You either know him from playing Larry in Hellraiser, or you know him from Star Trek Deep Space Nine, where he played Garrick. I know him from both because that's the kind of person I am. And Sergeant Botnick is a fruity character i think you can apply a queer reading to him too because he seems weirdly interested in cutting the hairs of these young men and he's a strange guy who we know is eventually going to get it and uh, for some reason he decides to try to cut chucky's hair not sure why you'd want to cut a doll's hair but this is the person we're dealing with exactly and chucky takes his 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 straight razor and just slits his throat Andrew Robinson ate that scene up. 
Yeah. Like he knew that was his moment and he took it and uh, bless that queen. <laughs> and then Chucky, of course, comes through with another one liner perfectly uh, timed and delivered. And yeah, it is a strange turn of events that he finds a doll and he's like, well, I need to cut the hair of this doll now. And we're all like, sure, I guess that's fine. Uh, (laughs) He seems like the kind of guy that you don't know what he's going to do anyway. And I think to Andrew Robinson's credit, you can, with the way he plays this character, you can buy that he's like, yeah, I'm going to practice on this doll. I don't know. I got nothing else to do right now. This is kind of my jam. And there's even a, there's a, a callback of sorts, I would, I would call it, in uh, Cult of Chucky, where one of the dolls that Andy mails to the psychiatric uh, hospital has his hair cut back, like a military style cut. And there's all the the other two Chuckies are mocking him for his haircut. He's like, what happened to your hair? He's like, look at me. Look what they did to me or whatever. And it feels like, I don't know if it's intended, but knowing Mancini, it probably was a reference back to this Chucky almost getting his haircut in this scene. I don't recall that moment, but I'm very eager to rewatch those movies to experience that moment again. Because I I rewatched parts one, two, and three for this because that's the kind of person I am. And I decided, well, I just need to keep going. I just need to finish the whole franchise. Yeah. It it goes down so smooth. All of these movies, they're like, they're such easy watches. They're all like an hour and a half and you can just breeze through them in in a day if you have the time to, to do so. And it's... It's just, it's really fun to watch them. What I love about these movies, there's such an organic through line. Like they're all so different. And this the franchise takes so many different paths throughout the course of its history. And it all feels so natural to where it ought to be going. It's so unique in that way. I feel like no other franchise is like that. Yeah, I, I, I think I, I 100% agree. I wanted to make sure we mentioned too, there's another scene that speaks to the homophobia of Kent's military academy in general and the characters within it. There's a scene where the girls are teasing Tyler and they put lipstick all over Chucky and Chucky's very adverse reaction. I I think he says the line, but he doesn't say it like this, but it's basically like Bugs Bunny style. Like, well, then of course this means war, that kind of thing. And I thought that really led, it, it happened soon after the thing with Shelton where he has that gay panic moment with Andy in his room. And, and it really top builds on, on each other, the, that how, how strong those themes are in this particular movie. It's really baked into so many different aspects of it that you don't necessarily pick up on first watch. Right. So here's an interesting thought about that moment that I didn't, that hadn't occurred to me until this most recent rewatch of it. And I think you're right when you say there is a reading of the film where Chucky has a homophobic reaction um, to having this lipstick applied to him. There's a slightly different reading where you could say that Chucky is having this, these gender norm applied to him in the way that Kent Academy is inversely applying norms to everyone else. Because Kent is basically trying to create this heteronormative, hyper-masculine environment and um, to the detriment of some of the people attending. I'm not going to say all because I think people like Shelton probably thrive in that environment. But it's definitely not helpful to everyone. And here we have the opposite where Chucky in this otherwise super masculine place is having lipstick applied to him and he gets a reverse 
taste of that medicine. So I think the scene works in two very different ways, depending on what angles you come at it. Yeah, that's a good point. I, I love the the read of as the inverse uh, gender norms being placed on Chucky because Chucky and Andy are so intertwined throughout these movies. And if Chucky is the trauma that Andy experienced as a child, it lingers with him throughout his whole entire life, as we see later in the series. They're like two sides of the same coin. And so it would make sense that they would both be forced into this, into confronting their own identity in different ways. Right. And this idea of gender identity being forced on someone or having certain expectations of gender will come back in Seed of Chucky in a much more obvious way. So once again, I think this is Don Mancini planting seeds, so to speak, that will mm-hmm. come up later in future entries in this fan- franchise. Yeah, there's even a moment later on where Chucky sees De Silva and Andy kiss, and he's like, I really got to get out of this body. And to me, it's I read that as, oh, one, Chucky doesn't know that later on in the, in the series, he's going to get anatomically correct. And the introduction of Tiffany, the introduction of a love interest, leans into, well, Chucky needs love too. I'll glance that idea in your mind. And then the very next movie, who do we meet? But Tiffany Valentine. And so I think there's there's definitely little bits that are are set up there. And not only that, I like I think the puppetry uh, takes moves forward by leaps and bounds from the previous two movies. In part because they were using they used I think computers for the first time in syncing up the lips with the dialogue. And I think you can you can tell it do, it does seem like the the filmmakers are way more confident and giving Chucky those full-on close-ups and giving him more FaceTime, where, where in the previous movies, I think they tried to work with the resources that they had. Oh, yeah. And I think that is hugely important because as the films go on, Chucky becomes even more cantankerous with his one-liners and his personality becomes more pronounced. And I think it was very important for them to be able to master the mouth movements in order for Brad Dourif's delivery to really land. If Brad Dourif is giving it his all, if the puppet's mouth doesn't match, it's not gonna work. It doesn't matter how great Brad Dourif is, even though he's an Oscar-nominated actor for a reason. I think that that's a very important uh, detail that you mentioned there in the uh, evolution of the franchise. Yeah, a lot of little details in this movie jumped out at me on this rewatch. I, they say, they mention early on when they're talking about relaunching the good guys that that's the good guy of the 90s. So clearly they redesigned the doll a bit. There's a line where Chucky is being carried away from, by, from Tyler and he says, I'll be back in the doll voice. So I thought that was an interesting, like, I don't know if I just missed it, but I didn't, I felt like, he was very limited on what he could say in the in the good guy voice in previous movies. So that establishes that Chucky can speak at that in that voice at will if he so chooses. Because it wasn't it wasn't uh, I like to be hugged or I'm your it wasn't it wasn't one of the canned phrases that he has. So that stood out to me. And there's a scene where Shelton is has all the students lined up and he's talking about how a soldier's rifle is his best friend which I thought was very specific wording mm-hmm. since Chucky's whole thing is, mm-hmm. is being best friends to the end. So I thought that was, that was demonstrating to me how this environment and, and Chucky's tie to Andy were in direct opposition. And uh, obviously all hell breaks loose in the finale. 
And the guns and rifles are a bit of an obvious symbol. The, right. the whole, this is my rifle, this is my gun bit. <laughs> yeah. it's, about as, it's about as phallic as you can get. And people like Shelton eat that shit up. They'll, they'll soak in all of that phallic stuff as a joke. But the moment something becomes legitimately queer, homosexual, that's, that's off limits, that's bad. Right. So I think that, that, I don't know if dichotomy is the right word, but that is a very interesting point that I think uh, these filmmakers are making. This, the fine line between camaraderie and homophobia. Before we start winding down, I obviously want to talk about the climax. So Chucky puts bullets in, uh, real bullets, live rounds in one of the team's rifles. So you basically have a bunch of children inadvertently murdering each other. But at the end of the movie, Whitehurst dies a hero's death, jumps on the grenade, which I thought was a really sweet moment. And then, then you have the big showdown at the carnival where Chucky is, you know, he, I, I, first of all, I love the effects of Chucky getting half his face sliced off. I think that looks super gnarly. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and then setting up his stitched look with him obviously falling in the fan, being sliced to, to bits. Is there anything about that, that carnival climax that you wanted to touch on before we wind this up? Well, before we get to the carnival, you had mentioned the war games and Chucky putting the live ammunition in the rifles. I, Shelton's death, I am of two minds about. I wish we had seen Chucky kill him. Hi, soldier. <laughs> Fuck me. All right. <laughs> Because I would just really like to know what that would have looked like. Because if mm -hmm. anyone in this whole series deserved to be killed by Chucky, it was Shelton. But him dying in the war games also makes sense. Because he seems like one of those types of guys who glorifies dying on the battlefield. I, I, I imagine that Shelton is one of those people who wanted to go out like Willem Dafoe and Platoon shot to bits with his hands in the air as a, a capital H hero. But here he's, he's the opposite of that. It's like he got probably what he had always fantasized about, but with none of the glory. Exactly. And in a way that's, that's what he deserves. So I'm, I'm of two minds about that. I'd still like to see Chucky kill him, but I, I'll accept what we were given. The, the carnival ride climax, I think is fantastic. This has to be the most OSHA violating ist carnival ride ever and i want to ride it I, I i would believe that actual people died on this ride even without chucky being there it is so hardcore and all the moving pieces are so cool uh, the art department deserves a prize because i think it's fabulous and the, the little chase that occurs on the tracks and whatnot i think is super fun and i wish i could have been there honestly <laughs> After the, the factory, the warehouse toy factory of the last movie, I think they needed to find a really dynamic setting for the, the big showdown. And a carnival, obviously, is talk about a, an environment that 
starkly contrasts with a military academy. I think that's that was a smart choice just to to give them give them something something visually interesting to do here. So I I think this is yeah this is an interesting film. But before we get to your ranking, your verdict on this and all that, what do you consider the legacy of the Child's Play franchise? What is this? What does it contribute to either cinema or the, or the genre itself? Well, I think it is perhaps the queerest overall horror franchise. Some might try to make a case for Hellraiser, and I'm, I'm willing to listen. But after entry number four, that franchise goes in a completely different direction for the worst. And I, as a whole, I think Child's Play is stronger. It has the most organic evolution. See, I'm not a huge fan of the Friday the 13th franchise. I enjoy them. I've seen all of them multiple times. But as a whole, I'm not a huge fan because every movie is the same to me. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to Halloween, that mythos got so convoluted and there's not much continuity from film to film. You have to go in these very specific flow chart. It means like a choose your own adventure. Yeah. And so like what what happens in Halloween depends on what movie you put in next. And uh, Nightmare on Elm Street is all over the place. I, I kind of like all of them in that franchise, but it doesn't exactly have a, a continuity in quite the same way. I think Don Mancini was uh, a key component there because this, this movie starts out as a very, or this franchise starts out as a very straight um, slasher story with this killer doll that's just going around killing people. And after a while, it becomes something completely different. You start getting that dark humor and that campiness and the more explicit queerness um, as things go along. So the franchise does not stay the same. It's not like every movie is a carbon copy of the one that came before it. Each one is slightly different than the one that came before. And it takes its drastic turn when it needs to, which I think was a very smart move. So I think this movie deserves, or this franchise deserves more credit than it gets. I think it should be up there with your Friday the 13th and your Halloweens. And I think this movie, Child's Play 3, is unjustly maligned because it is a key stepping stone in where this franchise goes. Like we, we mentioned a few times, the movies that would come after it and where a lot of those ideas were first introduced in this this film. So I think if you look at the franchise as a whole, Child's Play 3 is integral. I suppose if you're looking at them individually as their own units, I suppose I can see why some people might like it less, but it doesn't deserve to be erased from this series because it's it's too important. Yeah, I, I agree. In, in pre preparation for this episode, I did a little research and it, it turns out that it seems like Don Mancini and Brad Dourif both list this as their least favorite in the series, but I feel like that's just mostly because it could have been so much better if the studio hadn't been pushing it assembly line style through through the system. I, I think it could have been even stronger and not been such an easy target for so many people. It's certainly not without value. I think I'm the type of person that when I'm into a franchise, I'm into the franchise. And even the ones that I don't necessarily consider the best, I still like, well, you're part of the family, you're, you're important here. And I, I think it's unfortunate that a lot of Chucky fans or, or casual Chucky fans, at least, uh, seem like they go, oh, yeah, we watch one and two and then, and then we stop. <laughs> we don't bother with three. And I'm like, well, there's more. There's, there's something there to be reexamined. And I agree with you. This movie deserves 
deserves to be officially welcomed back to the table of the franchise, so to speak. So obviously from our conversation, it's pretty clear, but does this movie, in your opinion, deliver on its predecessor? Was it a smooth ride or a wrong turn? And what is your ranking for the seven? So when it comes to like, which movie am I more likely to watch for entertainment value uh, between two and three? It's going to go to two. I think two is an absolute thrill ride. I love part three for all of the ideas that it presents and a lot of these queer themes that we would um, go on to see explored more obviously with each entry. So I think if I were going to rank them from least favorite to favorite, I would probably put Curse of Chucky at my bottom. Now, for the record, I like all of these films. I think mm -hmm. they're all fun and sure. I like the, the stepping stones from film to film. So I'm just going from least most favorite to most most favorite. And Curse of Chucky is probably at the bottom, followed by Cult of Chucky. Th these are two entries that I've only seen once when they both came out and I'm due for a revisit and maybe a revisit might change things. But as of right now, I'm gonna go uh, Curse at the bottom, then Cult. This is where it becomes a little tricky. I'll probably put Seed of Chucky next. I really like Seed of Chucky and I love all the things that it's doing, playing with gender identity and expression and the campiness of that film. And I love seeing Don Mancini really take the reins as a director. So next I'm probably gonna put Child's Play 3, which might surprise people given how much I tend to defend it. Because I, I do think it deserves defending. I love all the ideas that it presents. It has some really fun kills, ones that have stayed with me like the garbage truck man. But if I'm going by the ones that I get the most thrill out of, that's probably where I put three, followed by the original. The original might be the one that I've seen the most, just given that it's the first one. It was the one that introduced me to Chucky. And it's it's such a tight little thriller. And I, I love it. After that, I would probably go Child's Play 2, which I think is a fabulous part two. One of my favorite part twos in any horror franchise. It takes everything that the first one established and just runs with it. And you get a great Beth Grant murder. Mm -hmm. Beth Grant, one of our best character actresses of the day. I love her in that. And then my favorite in the uh, franchise is uh, Bride of Chucky. Bride of Chucky is just, it's just perfect in every way. And Jennifer Tilly is splendid. And uh, I think it's the franchise's highest point. Bride is definitely in the conversation for most beloved. And I think it's it's because of a lot of reasons. People will hear it on the next episode. But the addition of Jennifer Tilly is is a big step in that direction. And it makes me that much more excited to see what they do with the show and how they build on all of these different elements from all these seven wildly different movies. Yeah. And I'm just going to say here, my maybe my favorite prop in the franchise is her voodoo for dummies. Yeah, <laughs> that she uses to resurrect Chucky. That is the most brilliant use of a, a book series as a prop <laughs> that I think I've ever seen in a film. Voodoo for dummies. It doesn't take too much time to think about why that's brilliant. Yeah. And I love it. I, I, have a, I have that picture saved on my phone randomly of like Jennifer Tilly and her like black nighty with the book out and Chucky on the floor. And I just, <laughs> I just chuckle when I'm scrolling through my pictures and see it. So... Yeah. 
it's planted there for for reasons to make me happy when I'm scrolling. It's yeah, cool. that's it's a great entry, and I'm, it was my first one that I saw from start to finish. I would imagine that most people my age, that was probably the case because that movie came out in what ninety eight, ninety nine, something like that. Yeah, ninety eight. So, yeah, so I'd imagine most people in like their their late twenties to mid thirties probably saw that one first. Maybe at least was for me. So maybe that factor is playing a part here and why it's my number one. But I also just think it's it's a fantastic, thrilling film. It's like a natural born killers, but but make it killer dolls. Right. Absolutely. One hundred percent. And people people will hear that on the next episode, which which is as you were saying such a fun movie to watch and to talk about. But for now, I just want to say thank you so much, Brandon, for coming on the show to talk about Child's Play 3. It's very important to me to have people on the show talk about movies that they love, not not just rip things to shreds. So once I knew that you were a defender of this movie and I knew this movie's reputation, I was like, well, I want to, I definitely got to get Brandon on the show because I don't want to do an episode where it's just like, oh, isn't a terrible Child's Play three? Right. I don't, I don't like to put that negativity into the world, and that's not what we're here. Yeah, we're here to celebrate it. movies, and so thank you for coming on the show and and helping get people to watch this movie and not be afraid to 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 put pop this disc in their Child's Play box set into the Blu-ray player every once in a while because it, it's. As we were saying, it's it's that it's that middle step between the first two and Bride of Chucky, and and I think it's it's an important piece that unfortunately got lost in the shuffle there. Right, and I'm I'm so touched that you remembered my random mention of defending this movie like a year ago and giving me the outlet to express express my adoration for this film verbally and not just in people's mentions when they uh, mention that they're watching it or mentioning or saying that it's not good. So it's, it's nice to finally have it out there in podcast form. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Twitter, Twitter occasionally brings people together and, and not, it's not necessarily always a cesspool, even though it depends on your, your, your mileage may vary, I suppose, but, but yeah, so Thanks for coming on. I w- I'd love to have you back at some point. It's funny that you mentioned Elm Street because at some point, if I do another horror franchise, I'm actually doing Evil Dead next and that's already filling up. But then if I do another one after that, like another long one, I'm definitely going to do Elm Street. So I will keep you in mind for any of those if you have oh, interest. Cool. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Brandon. Yeah, it's been great. I'm so honored to be here and thank you for having me. This has been really fun. Big thanks to Brandon Stanwick of Fearsome Queer for coming on the show to talk about 1991's Child's Play 3. We were in such a fervor over the uh, over this movie that I actually forgot to ask Brandon to tell people where you can find him on social media. So I will do that for him now. You can find him on Twitter at Brandon Stanwick. That's B-R-A-N-D-O-N-S-T-A-N-W-Y-C-K. And of course at fearsomequeer.net where you can find his ranking of every single kill from the entire Child's Play franchise. Check that out at fearsomequeer.net. Definitely follow Brandon on Twitter. Now I want to know, do you think this was a fitting conclusion to the Andy slash Chucky trilogy? Obviously Andy pops back in later on. Spoilers for uh, Curse and Cult of Chucky. But as for now, this is the end of Andy's storyline, Andy's arc, as Brandon mentioned on the show. 
is this a fitting end to what is essentially a horror trilogy of a boy and his doll? Let me know on Twitter at Crooked Table. Same handle on Instagram and via email at robert at crookedtable.com. We'll be back next episode with Bride of Chucky, where things really get interesting. Uh, But for now, that's a wrap on another Crooked Table production. Catch you next time. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. (laughs) C-R-O-O-K-E-D. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> <laughs>